as you might imagine by the title, we're going to be centering on Jesus. I know, right? It's, it's pretty amazing. I'm, I'm really smart. Um, we're going to be centering on Jesus both as a church community and hopefully as individuals as well. And there's going to be several components that kind of revolve and orbit around this theme. So obviously the first Sunday of each month we'll have our celebration services here. I'll be preaching and teaching from the scriptures. And then we'll have a follow-up discussion on the second Sunday in our microchurches about what we're experiencing and hearing here. And then we also have, as James mentioned earlier, our New Testament Bible reading plan as we're working through the New Testament together. So all of these things are fitting into this larger scope of being Jesus-centered. I want to give you kind of an overview of what we're going to be doing this year. These are the um, titles of the sermons that we'll be working through uh, this year at, at our first uh, Sunday of each month. And um, I hope to have a couple of books each time to kind of further dive into um, each of these topics if any of you guys are interested in that. And I also hope to be able to send out an email the week leading up to that first Sunday celebration with a few thoughts and scriptures for you to prepare uh, as you come in together uh, for our time. So today what we're going to do is we're going to focus on Jesus being the center of love. I thought, what better way to kick off this idea of being Jesus-centered then really what Jesus is most known for. And of course, we just read in 1 John at the end of last year, and in 1 John it says that God is love. And so this idea of love is something we want to unpack and something that really needs to be our starting blocks as we focus in on Jesus. And of course, uh, what better passage could we focus in on around love than 1 Corinthians 13? This is a famous passage, uh, often read by itself, but it's actually a part of a larger context, uh, obviously the letter of 1 Corinthians itself, but in particular chapters 12 and 14. Uh, chapter 13 about love is really in the context of 12 and 14. So we're going to read only 13 today, but I do want you to know that 13 is sandwiched by chapters 12 and 14, and it's important for us to read it in its context. So <clears throat> I wanted to read 1 Corinthians 13 to begin with, um, and make a few comments today, especially as it pertains to us moving more into this decentralized microchurch network. And I know that this direction and change has been difficult for a few of us. It has come with some level of angst and uncertainty and perhaps just plain anger and frustration. Uh, but I hope to inspire us and call us towards this direction of having greater love. Greater love for God and for people. How many of you guys like change? Anybody out here really love change? Okay. Any of you guys not really like change so much? Okay, that would probably be the more typical human response. Um, if you've been around this church for a little while, you've probably experienced some change, right? There's been one or two things that have created change. That's probably fair to say, right? Um, one of our good friends, Daniela, drew a sketch one time called the Funny Farms, right? What did you call it? Paradigm Shift Farms. I just remember it as Funny Farms, and it was all of the things that were changing in the midst of our community. And she said, John, I just can't take one more change. This was a few years ago. She's still around. It's quite amazing. <laughs> we're going to read in 1 Corinthians 13. I'm going to invite Ruthie to read for us. So if we could bring her the mic. Thank you, Ruthie, so much. So you guys will remember that the chapter numbers and the verse numbers are all added much, much later in the history of the scriptures. So I'm going to actually have Ruthie pick it up in the very last verse of what we call chapter 12, and she'll read through the end of chapter 13. Thank you, Ruthie. 
Thank you so much, Ruthie. Chapter 13 is obviously a famous chapter in the New Testament. Where do we typically hear these words? At weddings, right? But it's in a context that's specific, right? Obviously, the letter of 1 Corinthians, but in particular, as I mentioned, chapters 12 and 14. So Paul, in this part of the letter, is dealing with sin in the Christian community in Corinth. That's what he's dealing with in his letter of 1 Corinthians. And in particular, at this portion, he's dealing with them complaining about one another's gifts and abilities, and that some of them have better gifts and abilities than others, right? This is chapter 12, just preceding what we read. This is what causes Paul to say that everybody is equal in the body of Christ, and everyone is needed, right? The foot can't say to the hand, I don't need you. The eye can't say to the hand, I don't need you. Why is he talking about that? Because the Christians in Corinth were getting upset with one another. They were complaining to one another. They were bickering and arguing because it wasn't fair. Mickey got the musical gift, and Joshua can sing really great, and and I don't get any of that, or whatever the case was, right? And in particular, he's talking about the gifts of prophecy, the gifts of tongues, being able to speak in unknown human languages, right? As we see in Acts 2, where Peter and the other apostles are able to miraculously speak in other languages that other people spoke, but that they didn't previously know in order to get the gospel out. So Paul is dealing with this early church community, and God is gifting and enabling these people with certain gifts and opportunities and abilities for the purpose of spreading the gospel, and they're starting to complain to one another that it's not fair. Then he starts talking about love. And so here at the start of chapter 13, in the first three verses, he says that the gifts of miraculous tongues, being able to speak in other human languages, or even the languages of angels, he says, whether you have absolute knowledge, whether you have the ability to fathom all mysteries and wisdom and have insight, whether you have faith that can accomplish miracles, or whether you are willing to sacrifice everything you have for the poor or even be a martyr. He says all of it means nothing unless you have love. For me, these first three verses are poignant. I bet you can find yourself somewhere in there. He says, if I speak in the tongues of men and angels... If I can have the gift of prophecy and insight, if I can fathom all mysteries and have all knowledge, as if that were even possible, if I have faith that can move mountains, if I give everything I have to the poor and even sacrifice my body to the flames, it's all meaningless unless it is done out of love. You know, Kim was talking about being a task-oriented person. Any task-oriented people out there? Okay. We're, we're going to get along great. All tasks from a Christian worldview are meaningless unless they're done out of a motive of love. For those of us that like checking off lists to, like, look at that list through the lens of a motivation of love can change the nature of that list really quickly. I know for me, I check things off and love is not within a 10-mile radius of that item or that task being checked off. But man, do I feel good checking it off. 
for us today, we may not be complaining about the same things that the Christians in Corinth were complaining about. We may not be complaining that certain people have certain gifts or miraculous abilities that we don't have, but what do we complain about in church? Well, I mean, you know, other people in other churches, right? What do they complain about? We don't do that here. No one has ever done that ever in their life. But take a moment, think about it. What complaints have you had about your church this past year and why? Reflect on that for a moment. What complaints have you had about your church this past year and why? Some of the things that I hear with some level of consistency, things like, I don't really get fed spiritually at my church. This church doesn't really have the music that I like or the kids' ministry that meets the needs of my children or it doesn't have a singles ministry or a recovery ministry or fill in the blank. Perhaps I hear things like, I don't like meeting in microchurches. It takes away my opportunities for relationships. Perhaps I hear things like, I don't get enough good Bible teaching in my church. That one's probably true. Or I don't really know anyone in my church. You know, in Colossians 3.16, Paul says that when we come together, we're to sing songs, hymns, and spiritual songs with what? Gratitude in our hearts. So whether or not you and I are hearing the music that we like, I really personally like the music that I hear at this church, but that's just me, especially when Patrice is up there wailing on that microphone. But... The scriptures teach us that actually what's important about music is the status of our hearts. That whatever music we're singing or listening to is born again out of that motive of love, the motive of gratitude, not selfishness and my personal preferences, right? Most American adults are starved for relationships. One of the greatest epidemics in our culture is loneliness. Kim was talking about it earlier, you know, all throughout this rural Western Carolina area, we have people who are isolated and sequestered and alone. And even right here in Asheville, in the city, you could live in an apartment complex with people 10 feet away from you and be utterly alone. Loneliness is an incredible challenge for most of us as adults. And if you want to go to church and be anonymous, if you want to walk in and not know anyone and not talk to anyone, not get tangled up in the mess of humanity, if you want to leave during the last song, there are a lot of church options for you out there. Obviously, we're trying to do our best to cut against that. And guess what? It gets messy because we have to actually know one another. I was on a phone call with a brother the other day, and he's like, man, we, we just got to keep it humorous, you know, otherwise we might get mad at each other. But it was such a great conversation to be able to truly know one another. And the sentiment was, like, if we didn't take the time to actually talk about this, I wouldn't know what your heart is about this. And so as we're trying to create this opportunity to have authentic, real relationships, to experience the power of the Holy Spirit with one another, we've got to give our hearts 
Our microchurches are designed to be a vehicle of Christian relationship and intimacy. Give your heart. We get out of something what we give to it. And so if you are begrudgingly going to microchurch or going out of some sort of sense of religious obligation, you're probably not going to get much out of that. And it's probably not going to help you a whole lot. But we want to view and believe and act like our microchurches are our actual family, our actual brothers and sisters in the Lord. And this way of thinking affects how we act and the decisions that we make. Do you think if your actual family was having a family dinner or a Thanksgiving meal, you could just like not show up, not say anything because you had better things you wanted to do with your time? How would that go over? Angel, what would happen if you didn't show up for your Thanksgiving meal and you didn't, you didn't say none? Why would they be upset? Because they expect you to be a part of the family, right? As much as you might try to 23andMe your DNA away, you're part of the family. Crazy uncles and all. But for so many of us, we don't view church that way. Church is not our family. Church is something that is on the side in an orbit around my life. And that orbit can come and go. We can decide, well, that's not convenient for what's really at the center this week or this month or this day or whatever. And that is against what Jesus came to teach us, to show us, and to institute in his bride, the church. He came to make people brothers and sisters that had no business being brothers and sisters. If you take a close look at the 12 apostles that he chose, they were some of the most ragtag group of people that would never be found together in a group ever. People who would be natural sworn enemies. And he says, love one another as I've loved you. Man, that is difficult. So if you want to go to church and have this anonymous experience, I'll never forget, I had this conversation with this girl one time on a college campus. She's like, yeah, I came up here to go to school and I found this church online. I started going and I love it because it's a really big church. I come in like five minutes after it starts. I put up my one little, you know, wimpy finger to tell the usher it's just me today and they sit me down in between random strangers, and I never have to talk to anybody, and I hear some good music, and I hear a good sermon, and I get up during the last song, so I don't have to talk to anybody, and I leave. And I've been doing it for months, and it's amazing. And I was like, wow, okay. I could see why that would be amazing, because you don't have to deal with anything you don't want to deal with. And of course, in the context of the conversation, I was telling her about this church. And I said, if that's what you're looking for, you probably not going to enjoy it too much, you know, so don't, don't bother coming. But because, you know, we're going to do our very best to make sure you don't have that experience. <laughs> but I thought, you know, there is something really appealing to that, right? Like, man, wouldn't that be sweet if you could go to your Thanksgiving meal and not have to talk to anybody, not have to get caught up in any of the recent family drama? not have to eat any of the nasty food that your aunt brought, you know what I mean? Like, wouldn't that be great? But you could still feel like you were part of the family, but you didn't have to actually do any of the hard parts of family. 
That's exactly what we do with church. And we've actually gotten systems developed that aid us in doing that, that help us to have this anonymous sort of experience. So as we think about Jesus being the center of love and what it looks like to really think of church as my actual family, that these people are my brothers and sisters in love, it's going to affect our decision-making. It's going to affect how we schedule our time. It's going to affect every area of our lives, just like actual family does. It's going to affect how we communicate with other people and whether or not we communicate with them. It's going to affect how we seek input from other people rather than just deciding on our own to deprioritize our spiritual family and our microchurches because that's just one thing in the orbit around my center. Now, I will admit, in a microchurch setting, there may not be as many easy or natural relational opportunities for you. You may feel like it's nothing but a microchurch full of crazy uncles and bad aunts' food. You may not have people that are at a similar life stage or have similar interests or hobbies. But this is what Jesus died for, is to create an opportunity for us to love people that are not just like us. The world knows how to do this really well. The world knows how to partner up with people that are just like you. I'll never forget, a few years ago, Facebook was running an ad campaign during, I think it was during the Super Bowl, actually, and they were trying to promote groups. Any of you guys in a Facebook group? Anybody in a Facebook group? It's okay, you, you don't have to lie. You, you, can, you can say you're in a Facebook group. They were promoting Facebook groups under the paradigm of finding people that are just like you, right? And they would have the most niche, siloed things, you know, like people who like to wear black hats on Tuesday and walk to the left only, or just the most like random things. And their whole pitch was like, you can find people just like you in Facebook groups. And this idea that we want to flock together with people that are like us, that share similar interests or hobbies. And there's nothing inherently wrong with that. But just like Kim was saying, what about the people that God brings in our path that he's calling us to learn how to love that are not just like us? And, and what do we do when, when we are in those environments? Are we willing to put ourselves in those environments purposefully to try to love people and to be loved by people that are not just like us? We're there to give our hearts at our microchurches with whomever God has in front of us, whether they are in a similar life stage, whether they're not. Christ died for you, took your place and my place, and then he said it's better to give than to receive. And for many of us, we've experienced that. We've experienced the beauty and the joy and the fulfillment and satisfaction that comes when we actually give. It's the poison of selfishness that's deceptive. We think that by acting toward our selfish desires and fulfilling ourselves, it actually is counterproductive. It doesn't end up actually fulfilling us, certainly not for very long. And you know, we live in a time now of human history with the greatest amount of literacy and access to information that the world has ever seen. For centuries, a large portion of Christians couldn't read, 
much less own or have access to the scriptures? You think they walked around each week talking about how their church wasn't feeding them spiritually? Or that they needed more Bible teaching? You know, I could just like picture someone in Corinth walking around and being like, you know, my, my church just isn't really meeting my needs spiritually. I, I wish we had more Bible teaching. That's just hard for me to imagine happening, if I'm honest. They were too busy loving people that God put around them. They were too busy expressing their gratitude for their salvation and forgiveness of sins. Now, that's not to say that early Christians didn't have their own issues. Clearly, they did. They were sleeping with one another's in-laws, and you know, they were you know, getting drunk at the communion, and you know, like they had their issues. But in an age of history where we have so much access to information, I don't think that we really need more information. I want you to seriously consider whether you really need to learn more in order to follow Jesus faithfully. Or do you need more help actually obeying and putting into practice that which you do know? Bonhoeffer, in his famous book called Life Together, talking about the Christian community. It is not simply to be taken for granted that the Christian has the privilege of living among other Christians. Jesus Christ lived in the midst of his enemies. At the end, all his disciples deserted him. On the cross, he was utterly alone, surrounded by evildoers and mockers. For this cause... He had come to bring peace to the enemies of God. So the Christian, too, belongs not in the seclusion of a cloistered life, but in the thick of foes. There is his commission, his work. The kingdom is to be in the midst of your enemies. And he who will not suffer this does not want to be of the kingdom of Christ. He wants to be among friends to sit among roses and lilies, not with the bad people, but with the devout people. Oh, you blasphemers and betrayers of Christ. If Christ had done what you are doing, who would have ever been spared? Did you catch what he just said? It is not simply to be taken for granted that the Christian has the privilege of living among other Christians. When we say Jesus is Lord, it's not about us. It's not about us having our needs met. We have been fed this huge, greasy, saturated, Big Mac proportion lie in Christianity for far too long. We've been led to think that church is about us, about meeting our needs, about walking out of the church building feeling good about ourselves, having received a good word. We don't know anything about a good word down here in the South, do we? The greatest problem that you and I have, our sin, our enmity and hatred towards God that is worthy of judgment and condemnation has already been solved through Jesus, through his death and resurrection. We have no more needs that need to be met. That need being met through Jesus' sacrifice is supposed to empower and enable us to now live lives of freedom and love. Not running around church saying, 
I didn't get this spiritual gift. I don't think that the hand really needs me. I don't think, right? That's exactly what Paul's dealing with here. So Jesus dies to set us free to love other people, not just so we can go to some building and hear some uplifting songs or a sermon. People, especially young people today, are leaving the church in record numbers. And the young people that do try to stick around, they do try to stick in there for their faith, they're nauseously sick of this hypocritical and powerless version of Christianity that they so often see. And so Paul here, in this next section, probably the most famous part of this passage, love is patient, love is kind, it does not envy, it does not boast, and so forth. He outlines the nature of what love really is like. And of course, remember, he's dealing with specific context in Corinth. So he has two positive statements to begin with, eight negative statements, and the eighth one ends with both a positive and a negative, and then he concludes with four remaining positive statements about what love is like. And the eight negative statements about what love is not in the middle are directly related to all the issues that Paul has been talking about in his letter. The issues that Corinth is dealing with may not be the exact same issues that we're dealing with today. But the nature of love has not changed. And so perhaps Paul's words could be reshaped to fit our context. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not get easily angered, even when change occurs. Love does not cause you to go to microchurch begrudgingly or out of obligation to some sense of religious duty, nor does it cause you to not participate in microchurch because you would rather do something more selfish with your time. Love is not proud or self-seeking, as though the microchurch should always bend to what you want or what you think is best. Instead, love causes us to commit to and prioritize the life of the microchurch and the brothers and sisters in it to the best of our ability. Love causes you to fully forgive and keep no record of wrong, even when actual wrongs have occurred. Instead, love delights in the truth, actively seeks to reconcile and resolve conflict and causes you to be willing to speak up and speak the truth in a respectful way, even when it's unpopular. Love allows you to trust others' motives and give your brothers and sisters in Christ the benefit of the doubt rather than getting triggered from some pain in the past and projecting that onto other people. Love causes you to not give up or quit, but instead to persevere with others, both inside and outside of the kingdom of Jesus. Love is a never-failing covenant. I know that as we hear about the nature of love, it's, it's, it's an aspiration, right? It's something that we're wanting to strive toward, to, to put before us as a goal. None of us are going to do this perfectly, certainly not for very long, right? But as we center on Jesus this year, as we share about Jesus with other people, remember, you're not inviting people to a church, but rather you're inviting them into kingdom living along with yourself. It's your life 
in the kingdom of God that you're inviting them to come into. It's not a church. Do you see how that's a huge difference? Because if you're inviting someone to church, you're inviting them to this. You're inviting them to that lie of being entertained, of having their spiritual needs met, rather than the messiness of life-on-life Christianity. When you're inviting someone to Jesus, you're inviting them to yourself. And that's hard, because we got some crazy uncles at the family meal, you know what I'm saying? And we kind of wish they weren't there sometimes. But Christ died for you. Christ died for me. So next Sunday in your microchurches, I want you to, I want to encourage you to review our covenantal letter and discuss how the heart behind this letter is visible in your microchurch or not. And all of the microchurch pastors have this. As Paul finishes this portion of the chapter, this final section here in 8 through 13, he closes with the humbling reality of our own limitations. For Paul's context here in Corinth, he's saying that the spiritual gifts that they're arguing and complaining about, they won't last forever. They're not eternal. Tongues, prophecy, they're not going to be in heaven. The only thing that lasts forever is love because it will never cease to be a reality, unlike these other gifts. He says it's vitally important that as we strive to center on Jesus, that we remain humble and acknowledge that right now we can only see and understand in a way that is dark, dim, and enigmatic. Listen to this passage here in the NLT, verse 12. Now we see things imperfectly, like puzzling reflections in a mirror, but then we will see everything with perfect clarity. All that I know now is partial and incomplete, but then I will know everything completely, just as God now knows me completely. This word here is actually enigma, where we get our word enigma from. So in most of your versions, you'll have something like seeing a mirror or a mirror dimly or darkly or something like that. This word is literally enigma. And so Paul here closes after describing the nature of love, that everything we understand, everything we see, everything we experience right now is clouded. It's enigmatic. It's not clear. So for uh, for the ancient people that Paul's writing to, a mirror was actually just like a polished piece of bronze. Like we think of a mirror today and it's, it's really quite clear and accurate, right? Polished melted sand. It's very reflective. It's very clear. Have you ever tried to look at like a bronze pot and see your reflection? It's not very good, okay? And to think that's like what the, the wealthiest people had to see themselves in. Everybody looks good in a piece of bronze, you know what I'm saying? But he says that's what it's like. It's like when we look in a mirror and we go, I see you and I see that reflection of you and that is not you. It's kind of like you, but it's not really you. And he says, that's what our knowledge is like right now. That's what our understanding and experience of love is like right now. It's clouded, it's dim, it's dark. Paul says that one day, it's gonna be an actual mirror. We're gonna see things clearly. We're gonna see God clearly face to face. He's obviously referencing what there? Who, who looked upon God face to face? Moses, right? What happened to him? 
he started to glow and light up like a radioactive, you know, person. Had to put a veil over his face. Paul is reaching back to these Old Testament ideas. And he's saying, look, Moses was special, right? Moses was a special prophet unlike others because he saw God face to face. He was friends with God, the Old Testament would say. He had a unique relationship that changed him uniquely. Paul says, one day we're going to be like that. But right now, we only have this clouded mirror. And so what is his point? Stay humble. Be humble. Know that you don't know everything just yet. The doctrines and the theology that you think are so important, hold them loosely because you don't see clearly quite yet. I don't see clearly quite yet. I believe that these people here who followed Jesus and who heard about Jesus from his first followers, they would have said, we know that Jesus rose from the dead and that he's Lord over all creation. Outside of that, we only see dimly. Can we eat meat? There's been sacrifice over there to Aphrodite? I don't know. Maybe. I think so. I don't think so. Well, what about... You know, when we come together, how much wine can I drink at the communion table? Because, you know, I like that wine. I think this is important for us as we become a Jesus-centered people and a Jesus-centered church. Remember, we only see dimly right now, and that should cause us to be humble. In 2024, the Asheville Church Network is moving toward this most excellent way. What Paul says is the most excellent way, the thing that will be eternal, unlike gifts of prophecy and tongues. This means that we're going to learn and transform to love like God loves. It means that as God covenants with us through the blood of Jesus, we are going to covenant with one another. We can do this in all kinds of ways, but it certainly includes giving our hearts to one another and to our microchurches, prioritizing those people in our lives. Church is not going to just be one thing among many in the orbit of our lives that revolve around us at the center, but instead, we're going to be a people where Jesus is the center and our lives revolve around him together. As we do this, we've got to remain humble before God and before each other. And we all, who with unveiled faces, unlike Moses, contemplate the Lord's glory, are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Let's pray.